This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a productive, pleasing, passionate, and purposeful life. So today's episode will be of special interest to two groups of people. One, folks who are struggling to lose weight and have been struggling for many, many years. And two, plant-based folks who have an entrepreneurial streak and would love to quit your day job and make money promoting plant-based vegan lifestyle. Before we get there, one quick announcement. You can still download The Oatmeal Project, a short action guide that will help you handle breakfast. If oatmeal is or could be your thing, just go to plantyourself.com slash oatmeal, and that's all lowercase, and you can sign up and pick that up, and you'll also be subscribed to my weekly-ish Big Change Bulldog. Okay, let's talk about today's show. So when we make a big change in our lives, it's easy to forget who we were and how we thought before that change. You know, when we look back 10, 15 years, and maybe we were a completely different weight or had a completely different health status or a completely different relationship status, and we've made some huge breakthrough over time, it's really easy to forget what it was like before that breakthrough, when we were operating from a different consciousness, essentially as a different person. Well, today's guest, Russ Lomdu, does not have that problem because he's got a public video record of his old ways of being and thinking. This amazing two-minute compilation video of his stand-up routine about the travails of being an obese guy and trying to go on diets. And you can see that um, at the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 229. And you can also just search Russ Lomdu. <laughs> Good luck spelling it. Uh, just go to the show notes. Um, anyway, after selling his physical therapy practice, Russ began going to comedy open mics, and he achieved some success with his, you know, fat guy bemoaning his attempts at weight loss routine. And no question he's funny, but I can't help but be saddened at the self-defeating attitude of the man in the video. And I'm so happy to know that he's not that same man, and you'll meet him very soon. Because 15 years ago, after a lifetime of dieting, success and failure, up and down, hundreds of pounds, multiple times, he became what he calls an accidental vegan, and his weight loss accelerated, and for the first time ever, it was not reversed. So now Russ is an accomplished weight loss coach, you might say a life gain coach, and he's a serial entrepreneur, and he's just started a really innovative food delivery service called Harvest Food Box, which supports his clients and others in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut region. And in this episode, we talk about his fascinating past, his journey to health, his challenges, his way of overcoming them, the fact that he got an M1 rifle when he was eight years old, his entrepreneurial ventures, and his current work. But mostly we talk about his understanding of the mental aspects of weight loss and big change. So without further ado, Russ Lomdu, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Well, thank you. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, we, I feel like we should have recorded the last 10 minutes before we were recording. It was really <laughs> a fun conversation. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a fun conversation. We, uh, we, You and I, I think, can get along really, really well with a good cup of coffee and about six hours to dispose of. 
Yeah, sounds good. So let's 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 dispose of this next hour for for other people's benefit as well. One of the things I was struck by in your story is that we have before footage, and I know a lot of people who've lost hundreds of pounds. And honestly, when they show me their before pictures, I'm like, yeah, that's probably someone else. Like somewhere in my heart, I don't believe that Josh Lajani or Tim Kaufman or, or any of these other guys have lost two hundred. 250 pounds. But with you, we have video footage. You used to do stand-up comedy, and the clips that I saw of you were basically you making fun of the fact that you were obese. Yeah, can yeah. You, can One you talk my... about like your your background? How like what's the backstory of how you got to be obese and how you got to do stand-up about it? Yeah, well, I mean the the uh, the stand-up was what um, <clears throat> came about because I had sold my first practice. I had some time on my hands, and uh, I went back to work at the practice that I had sold. And my staff encouraged me to go to a, an open mic night. And what was the practice? Uh, I'm a doctor of physical therapy, so I had a physical therapy practice. And uh, I, I think my staff just wanted me to get out of the office. <laughs> <laughs> so I go to this open mic night, right? And I walk off the stage, and the owner of the club is standing in the wings and he's like you're funny I want you back on New Year's Eve and then that just kind of started this semi-career doing stand-up comedy in uh, in Long Island and New York and Connecticut New Jersey places like that and of course being from Long Island I just assumed that I would you know hit it big like every other you know Long Island comic Eddie Murphy and Billy Crystal and Ray Romano and I just thought you know hey it's just just a natural course of things and of course that never happened uh but uh, one of my f- one of my favorite bits was you know I, I get on the doctor's scale and uh, I-, I-, I exceeded the capacity of the scale so I broke the scale which by the way really happened you know back then if you were four hundred pounds or more and you wanted to get weighed at your doctor's office you were out of luck because they just didn't have scales that went that big and uh, so you know that uncomfortable moment when you break your your doctor's scale he, he looks at you <laughs> everybody knows that uncomfortable moment right. And he looked at me and he said, does obesity run in your family? And I, and I looked at him and I said, Doc, nobody runs in my family. <laughs> and, you know, I watch that clip now and as funny as it is, it was really true. It was really true. And, you know, m- my kids were kind of going the way I was going. And uh, when I lost the weight, that was probably one of the, the biggest realizations for me is that my kids started to get healthier. And my son ended up becoming a, an, an, an ROTC cadet and became the fittest cadet in New York State and ended up getting an Army scholarship to Syracuse University. And it's amazing how much your life can influence other people without you saying or doing anything, just by being you. Right. And when you become a different you, how profound that difference can be in the people's lives around you. So when you were doing that stand-up, how, how did you get... You, you're a doctor of physical therapy. You're not ignorant about the, the human body, about how to be well and healthy. What, it sounds like there was a pretty big disconnect. Um, can you describe like, how you got to be obese well, as a DPT? Well, you know, let's talk about that for a minute. First of all, it's no secret now that there is absolutely no education in nutrition or eating well or anything that resembles that in any medical school, physical therapy school, any allied health or health professional. And even, even people who are going to school to be dietitians don't necessarily learn how to eat healthy. Okay? They, they, um, they learn how to break nutrition down into some kind of component parts, but 
we don't learn holistically how to eat well and become we become healthy. So that's the first that's the first disclaimer there. So to 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 assume that I learned any of that in PT school out the window never happened. The other thing is that I don't ever remember becoming heavy. I remember being heavy my whole life. It's like I I just I remember being a, a fat 2-year-old. I remember being bullied in elementary school. I remember just be always being different. And when the time between uh, junior high school and high school, I lost like 125 pounds because that's because I just refused to eat the whole summer. That was that was how I did it. But I knew I couldn't go into high school being ridiculed the way I had been ridiculed for like what six years earlier. I just couldn't do it six seven years earlier. So, at a pure desperation, I lost weight, and of course that wasn't sustainable. So, I ended up losing and gaining over 500 pounds prior to losing that last 200. So it was up and it was down. I was either on a gaining cycle or a losing cycle. That was it. That was my life. Gaining, losing, gaining, gaining, losing. There was no staying. There was no staying the same. And after I lost the weight the last time, which was almost 15 years ago, by the way, so I think I pretty much got this thing knocked. The research suggests I do. The research suggests that if you can keep it off for five years, you're good to go. You're not going to gain it back. Any time within that five-year window, you got a you got a fairly good chance of, of gaining it back, statistically speaking. So during the time that um, <clears throat> after I lost the weight, I started to develop my own weight loss sort of philosophy and program, and, and how am I going to help other people lose weight? And I realized that the two questions that I got asked the most was, "How did you lose the weight?" Because people wanted to do exactly what I did, which never works, and how did you get to be so heavy? And it was the second question that was the most uncomfortable and most difficult to answer. And I realized that just like anything else in life, if you can tackle the most difficult and uncomfortable questions, there's probably something important hiding underneath. So I really do appreciate that you asked me the most difficult and uncomfortable question first, (laughs) because that is the most important one. And it's this. I am not the same person who was 410 pounds that I am now, period. Now, everything else to flesh that out requires that we understand how thought processes and beliefs and behavior systems evolve and how to deconstruct those and then rebuild them in a completely different way. My beliefs about food, my beliefs about exercise, my beliefs about who I was, my beliefs about everything had to change. And one of those primary belief systems, or schemas, as they call them in psychology, that had to change was what were my belief systems about food. And it evolved over time, but I became a vegan. I became a vegan completely by accident, but it was the best accident that ever happened. Um, But once I became a vegan, I started to re-engineer my entire belief system about food So now, when I look at animal products, I don't see food. I don't see it at all. I see something completely different. Whereas before, everything was food. I mean, literally everything was food. So that was just one one area in my life that had to completely change and be re-engineered so that I I think completely differently about food now than, than I did before. Does that make sense so, to you? Does that answer yeah, your question? Yeah, so, th- so that's the uh, a sort of very intellectual level, like a, uh, 
you know, a categorization process. Did you find when you finally solved your, your weight problem that you were, you had to, to rejigger your emotional responses around, you know, food and probably around life to find other ways of, you know, like what was, what was all that eating, what was all that eating doing for you that you had to address in different ways? I'm not sure I ever reverse engineered what my problem used to be. I just realized that my life wasn't working for me and it needed to change. It would be easy for me to say that, you know, I was I was eating to, um, you know, deal with emotions and deal with problems in my life. I'm not sure that that was that. In fact, it was so long ago, I'm not even sure I can remember. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is this. Um, when what, Here's what I have observed about people who start to um, adopt a vegan lifestyle. Either they're coming at it because, like, for me, it was about maintaining their weight loss or losing weight. And then all of a sudden, you start to realize the other lives that are being affected by eating meat, human and otherwise. And then you come and you start to realize the planetary effects of carnism. And some people approach it where it's their animal rights first, and then it's about health, and then it's about the planet. And some people approach it, it's about the planet, and then it's about animal rights, and then it's about health. But it seems that there's there's this whole sort of 360 view that vegans very frequently adopt. And I think part of that is because when we start eating more compassionately, we are more drawn to raise our consciousness. And when we raise our consciousness, it's harder and harder for us to ignore the truth and realities that are surrounding us. And I think for me, that that was one of the biggest shifts I made was sort of this this shift in consciousness to sort of be willing to explore the spirit, you know, we'll call it the spiritual side of things, but, you know, the, the, how, the how I fit into the universe and how interconnected we all are. And I find that's very, very frequently true of people who go through this journey as I've gone through this journey. So... I don't know if that answered your question. I think, I think it does. I think it does one better. It uh, <laughs> it kind of unasks the question. I mean, one one of the things that I've heard from from certain um, you know, healers is like, if you have an arrow in your back, you don't have to figure out like how it got there. You just got to remove it, which is kind yeah. of what I, I hear you saying. That I I didn't reverse engineer the problem. I just solved it. Yeah, that that's that's basically how it ended up for me, and it was an interesting evolution for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. So. What I've come to understand is that for the most part, humans operate on a binary code. Like computers, it's you know it's zeros or ones. The switch gets thrown one way or the other, and the computer makes the decision based on w- which one of those switches is is being presented to it at any given time. And for those of you who don't know a lot about computer programming, that's as far as that into that I'll get. But human beings operate on a similar binary code. When it all comes down to it, we either act out of love or fear. And if you look at anger and frustration and hate and that's all fear. You're afraid of something. You're afraid of losing something. You're afraid of losing your identity. You're afraid of losing your ground, whatever it is. And when you act out of love, it, your decisions are completely guided in a different way. Now, that's not to say that fear doesn't serve a purpose. If you're being chased by a tiger, it's probably a really good idea to start kicking in that fear response. But I think that human beings as a rule in this society tend to act a little bit more out of fear than, uh, than maybe they should. So for me... Um, 
when I act from a place of love, compassion, caring, whatever you, you want to call it, it, it guides my decisions in a very different way than before when I was acting out of fear. And the reason I started the conversation like this is because when I lost the weight, it was all about the weight. I was so afraid of gaining it back. I lived my life in constant fear. I was afraid of gaining it back. I didn't care if I was healthy. I really didn't. I just didn't want to be a 62-inch waist anymore. I just didn't want people laughing at me anymore. I just didn't want to go into a restaurant and everybody guess what I'm going to order because that's what it's like when you're 410 pounds. You see people look at you and you know they're not saying, oh, what a nice guy. They're looking at you saying, how, how dare he be so fat in public? Mm. That's what you feel every day. So for me, it was about not being there anymore. And I would have done anything, anything it would have taken to not be there anymore. So when I became a vegetarian, it was completely by accident. I could care less. But I, so I, came, across the, I came across the work of Barbara Rolls. I was actually, um, one of the nice things about being a DBT is you get to go to all these continuing ed courses if you want. And one of my favorite places to go to continuing ed courses was Harvard. So I show up at Harvard for this practical approaches to the treatment of obesity course. And who shows up but this woman by the name of Barbara Rolls. Now, Barbara Rolls basically said, listen, I think people who are big like to eat a lot. She's right, by the way. <laughs> and maybe if we could help them fill their stomachs, then they wouldn't, they'd get full. If we could help them fill their stomachs on fewer calories, they would be full on fewer calories. That sounds like a good plan. In fact, that's, that's almost the entire basis behind bariatric surgeries like the lap band and ruined wine, things like that. So let's, let's make the stomach smaller. So what she said is maybe we can do it without surgery. We can make the stomach smaller by filling it with stuff that doesn't have a lot of calories. So she did a lot of research and found out that all food can be classified by what's called calorie density. How much volume does it take up? And how many calories does it have? So if it has a lot of volume and few calories, it's said to have a low calorie density. So this made a lot of sense to me intuitively because I walked around my entire life in fear and hungry. Those were my two, those were my two things. Those were my, that was my basic state of mind. I was in fear and I was hungry. So these were two opposing things. I couldn't eat because I was in fear of eating. I mean, I, I wanted to die. It's like, why, why should I bother? So I, I found this work and I'm like, oh, I'm going to try this. So I start eating based on this volumetrics program. It turns out, you're going you're gonna to find this crazy, but it turns out that fruits and vegetables have a lot of volume and not a lot of calories. So I started eating a lot of fruits and vegetables out of fear. And then after time, I noticed that the meat products and the animal products were falling off my plate. I would eat my high-volume fruits and vegetables first. I'd get full. I'd look at the meat and go, eh. Never mind. So after a year or so of this, I just didn't bother putting the meat on my plate in the first place. And then as I started eating more and more vegetarian, I started to feel better. So I said, well, maybe there's something to this. And then I started reading. And I read all the books that everybody's read, you know, the China study. And I read, um, I read uh, S.E. Esselstyn's book, How to Reverse Heart Disease. And I thought, are you freaking kidding me? Are you, trying, are you trying to tell me that we've known for years that this is the healthiest way to eat, that people can actually reverse their disease. I reversed my diabetes, and I, my father had his first heart attack when he was 52. I have no way of telling if I was on my way to that, but I'm going to guess I might have been. And now all of a sudden I'm healthier. 
So now I get to have both. I get to be healthy. I get to feel good. And I get to not have to worry about my weight anymore. And I kind of started to get to this place where I no longer had to count my calories. I no longer had to be afraid of every single thing I put in my mouth. I only had a simple rule. Redefine food to include anything in the plant community. I was like, whoa, that's it? That's all it takes? So after a while, I went from vegetarianism, and the more I read, I started to realize that I could be even healthier if I gave up all other animal products and then migrated to this, to this vegan lifestyle and then started to realize that I don't have to be afraid anymore. And once I realized that, then I started to raise my consciousness and look at, well, isn't it kind of a coincidence that when you eat in the most compassionate way possible, you're also the healthiest you can be? I'm not so sure that's an accident. And then once I started to realize that, then I started to think about, you know, what is, what's happening to the animals that are being consumed? And you have to understand something. I grew up on a farm. All right, we, we raised beef cattle every year. I had one was, one was just for me. It was, we named it. It followed me around. It snuggled up against me. And then all of a sudden it was in the freezer. And that was the way we lived. Um, and pigs and did you and, Did you watch the uh, slaughter? A couple of times, yeah. I participated. You kidding me? That was the job. And that was what you did. And it was just not something I'd ever, I could ever even imagine wrapping my head around again. Um, yeah, it was just part of life. And here's the thing. We've evolved to a place where we don't need to make other organisms suffer in order to survive. We don't need to do that. In fact, when we do that, our quality of life suffers. So it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's complete. It's the definition of senseless. And um, so that's, that was the next evolution in my thought. And my thought pattern is, okay, this mm. thing that we think of as food isn't food. And one of the things I teach when I work with clients is, let's explore your food dictionary. And I'll go through things. It's like, um, I'll use Melanie Joy's example. I'll say, imagine you have a big, beautiful bowl of spaghetti and there's meatballs on top. I want you to imagine eating that. Just imagine how great those meatballs taste and they're just so awesome and and the fact they're so good you want the recipe and then when you ask me the recipe I said well it's golden retriever and I actually show you a picture of the golden retriever how do you feel and they of course they're, they're grossed out they're disgusted and I'm like well but were you disgusted when I was describing how these things taste how did you feel then well I felt I felt great I said it was great it was great it was great but then you ruined it I ruined it well help me understand what the difference is? Where where did you get to draw that line? Well, you know, dogs are so loving and caring. I'm like, I don't know. My steer that I had every year used to snuggle up against me, used to run across the pasture when he would see me. He'd recognize me. In fact, in many ways, they behave exactly like dogs, but maybe they're not as cute to you. I don't know. I'm not as cute as a lot of people. Does that mean that I'm, I'm fair game to be eaten? I mean, seriously, really not that much to look at. So at what point, where do you draw that line? Where do you draw that line? And where you draw that line is, is the beginning of your food dictionary, what you consider is and is not food. So I, the next example I would give is, well, what about crickets? Yeah, not crickets. Oh, I said in some, some parts of the world, they're not, that's their primary source of protein. It's like that's what they do. They eat crickets. 
And by the way, there's nothing wrong with crickets as far as a, like, they're not dangerous to eat, but they're not food to you. So now all of a sudden, getting people to explore how they define food and how those rules are really arbitrary. Like, they don't make any sense physiologically. If you can eat dog, then you can, if you can eat cow, then you can eat dog, then you can eat cricket. But yet you won't eat cricket and dog, but you don't know why. So being aware of what is and is not in your food dictionary and explore and ask why, those are important questions to ask yourself. And that's also really important to ask other people who are asking you about your lifestyle, if you happen to be a vegan and they're not. Just say, well, you know, these are the choices I make. This is, this is where my food dictionary is. You know, this is what I took the time to think about this. How about you? So, so, so I got to ask a question about that. And there's a lot, there's a lot I want to kind of put a pin in and come back to, but I, I work with a number of people uh, who are trying to change their, their diets and lifestyles. And, you know, I know when they come in to, to work with me and they're already vegan, that we're not going to have a problem with meat or dairy. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who come in who aren't vegan, who are sort of you know plant curious or or vegetarian or or semi, but don't don't identify, you know, sort of ethically as a vegan, there may be issues where they're going to be tempted by by meat or cheese. Um, but but the vegans very often get tempted by Sugar. nuts, by <laughs> vegan junk food. So yeah. like, what do you, what do you do? Um, when, when you're working with people and there are categories that are not, you know, that are conditional, maybe, yeah, or well, so, are not as black and white as, you know, vegan slash non-vegan. Sure. That's a, you know, that's a great question. It really is. And because life isn't black and white, right? And, you know, we need that gray area. Uh, sometimes gray is in a good way to describe it because there's too many shades of gray. I think there's 50, right? Less than I read. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I help people sort of adopt a very simple red, yellow, green light. It's like, listen, what are your goals? What are you trying to do here? You're a vegan. You're trying to lose weight, but you can't seem to lose weight, and you haven't quite got the handle on that. So, first of all, connect them to their purpose. What it is you want to do, and why do you want to do it? By the way, what I found is that nobody wants to lose weight. I've never met anybody that wants to lose weight. I've met a lot of people that want to weigh less. Huh. <laughs> what's, what's, uh, I think I get it, but tell me the distinction. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, nobody wants to go through the hard work of re-engineering who they are, changing what they do, changing what's, you know, changing how they relate to what's tasty or things they quote unquote love or things that behaviors that they've grown so attached to. Nobody wants to do the hard work of re-engineering any of that. That's what losing weight is. It's re-engineering your habits. It's re-engineering your beliefs. It's re-engineering your comfort foods, all of which is possible but a lot of freaking work. And a lot of people don't want to do that. Now, on the other hand, just about everybody who doesn't weigh what they want to weigh wants to weigh less. They just want to, they want to wake up and have it happen. And believe it or not, there's no judgment there. I'm one of those people. But the problem is that it's never going to happen unless they key into probably one of the most important factors in any behavior change is why am I doing this? Because when the going gets tough, your ability to lock into why this is so damned important to you is going to determine whether you're going to be able to step up and make the right decisions or fall back and make the old comfortable decisions. So getting people, you know, 
to really lock into why they're doing this, why they're losing weight, well, well, what is this about for you? You know, is it about, I mean, for me, it was a matter of life and death. For me, it was a matter of seeing my grandchildren and not seeing my grandchildren. For me, for now, now for me, it's a matter of, am I going to be able to be a role model to other people? Am I going to be able to change the world in the way I want to change the world? To keep, to keep sight of your purpose and to keep evolving it so that it's always bigger than you are, that will help you stay on track no matter what you're doing, no matter what behavior change you're trying to make. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is to get people to understand, listen, you want to have a vegan dessert? That's fine. What's the rule around that? Do you, do you look at it as a food or do you look at it as a flavoring? Because I'm going to tell you right now, when you start to realize that the purpose of dessert in your life should be to maybe finish a meal and give you that little bit of sweetness and really help you and really help people to understand that they can become more of a vegan gourmet and have this great, have all this food with reckless abandon and fill up their belly with all this great leafy greens and, and whatever else is presented to them that doesn't have a lot of calories. And then when dessert comes, enjoy very small quantities of it and then realize I can always have it again another day. And just keep it, keep it small quantities, sort of like a condiment then they'll never have a problem. But the vegan junk food people who are having trouble with their weight aren't seeing that way. They're seeing it as a staple, as a way to, to nourish themselves. That's not what it's for. So you don't have to give this stuff up, but you do have to relate to it differently. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I know a lot of people who would, who would argue that if you have a problem with it, that you may need to give it up. Do you... Do you do you find that every anyone can re-engineer their relationship with with vegan desserts and, and other you know processed foods or junk foods, or are there people that you find like one taste and then they're they're back in the in the pit of craving? Yeah, uh, you know, I have found that there are people who can re-engineer easier than others, and I have found that there are people who never seem to be out of the grips of the craving. But again, I can't parse out of the people who can't get out of the grips of the craving how many of those are really connected to their purpose. What I can say is this. If you're having a problem, it's probably better that to stay away from it completely than to, you know, um, what is it they say? Take, you know, take a break on the weekend or whatever it is. I, that strategy never, doesn't usually work. Right, your cheat day. Right, so the cheat days don't usually work. What also doesn't work is is waking up every morning saying, I'm never going to be able to have that vegan ice cream again. Once you enter that state of deprivation, then your whole body switches into fear mode. Now you're afraid you're never going to have this thing again. So there's some pretty complex psychological processes going on here, whereas if you have a little bit, you're going to binge. But if you tell yourself that you're never going to have it again, then you're going to go into this kind of fear denial so what I try to work with people to do is, sure, we'll try to eliminate it for a little while, but if we're going to re reintroduce it, can we reintroduce it with some rules or conditions? You know, you're only going to have dessert when you eat out, and you're going to get to eat exactly half and pass off the other half to somebody else. Can you do that? Now, if you understand there's a huge difference between eating half a dessert and having it sit there in front of you, than eating half the dessert and passing it off to someone else or eating half the dessert and making sure that the uh, the wait staff removes the extra portion that you didn't eat. 
And what I'm speaking about here is how are you arranging your environment in such a way that you're reducing the temptation? So I once was at a, a dinner party with this woman who um, this really decadent dessert came out and she took two bites and then she immediately put salt and pepper on it. <laughs> and that's what I said. I'm like, and I, I couldn't help but to ask. I'm like, that is the strangest thing I've ever seen anyone do to chocolate cake. And she goes, oh, no, I don't plan to eat it. In fact, I did it so that I wouldn't eat it. <laughs> and then as the night went on, what I realized is she was looking at this cake and then she reached over and she put her napkin and she squeezed it in underneath the napkin, which meant that even with the salt and pepper on it, she was willing to give it a go. <laughs> and so she had, to, she had to squeeze it underneath her napkin, then it was gone. But I found that to be a really, really good strategy is if you somehow make that ineligible to eat one way or the other, by giving it away, by throwing it away, whatever it takes, you still get to enjoy a little bit of it. And now, all you need to do is re-engineer your mind to say, well, at least I got to enjoy it. You know, you don't have to finish everything that's in front of you. If you do have to finish everything that's in front of you, how can you figure out a way to get it not in front of you? So those are some strategies. And of course, the strategies that we're discussing are, are really, really specific case by case. And it's really more of a coaching issue where you can work with somebody specifically to find out what it is they need to work on. Is it complete abstinence? Is it reintroduction? Is it re-engineering their, their thoughts around it? But at the end of the day, no matter what they need to do, it all starts with raising their level of awareness to realize that this is the problem that they're facing. Does that, you understand what I'm trying to say? I think so. I mean, what, what I'm getting from this is that we're still talking about a kind of, of language of food, that if cer certain foods are, you know, not in the dictionary, other foods, like when you have them taken away or give it to your uh, dining partner, or you put salt and pepper and smush it into a napkin, you're kind of, you know, turning it from a verb into a gerund or an adverb or something that you're... Well, you bring up, you bring up a really, really good point. It's all about language. Language is our, is how we are programmed. So when you start to observe the internal language that you use in tough situations, you can learn a lot about how you're programmed, and you can learn a lot about how to reprogram yourself. So I'm really, really glad that you brought that specific term into the conversation because a lot of people don't realize that. We are essentially programmed by our internal dialogue. Right. And uh, so, you know, when we, we talk about one, this is one, something I learned about 12, 12, 13 years ago from John Allen Mollenhauer, who was saying we don't talk about giving up. Right. We talk about eliminating. Right. Because like, mm -hmm. giving up already feels like deprivation. Once you start depriving yourself that you, your whole your whole psyche goes into fear mode and then all of your decisions start being made out of fear and they're they're different decisions every single time. It's hard to connect to your purpose. It's hard to connect to moving forward when you're constantly afraid of what's behind you. You can't look backward and move forward. So one of the most positive things that you can do is keep connecting to something in the future. Keep connecting to your purpose. Keep connecting to why you want to do this don't necessarily be worried about what you'll never be able to have again or, or what you'll never, you know, what you're depriving yourself of. Right. It's a completely different mechanism. So either you're operating out of fear and you're looking behind you or you're operating out of love and, and hope and you're looking in front of you and you're able to move forward. So constantly be looking for that opportunity to look forward. And one of the things you can look forward to is to 
understand that you don't have to deprive yourself of anything. You just have to set some rules. So, for instance, um, a while back, I was I realized that I started to have this really bad Starbucks habit because Starbucks had free refills if you were a gold member, and goodness knows I am a gold member. So, <laughs> I go into Starbucks, and I'd find and I'd start. I realized I discovered that they uh, they could steam soy milk in your in your coffee now. So, I started to drink these things, and I and I willfully uh, sort of repressed the fact that this particular soy milk had sugar in it. So I was drinking a lot of caffeine and a lot of sugar and a lot, just everything that I don't normally do. But I got hooked on these things. I have it. And I, I would get three or four of these ventes in a, in a writing session. I'd sit down to write and I'd have these, this coffee be all hopped up on caffeine. And what I realized is I had a problem. Um, so I needed to either not go to Starbucks, which I tried for 30 days, and I, 30 days was over, and I sped back to Starbucks. So that was, that deprivation strategy didn't work. Like, I knew every day I'd wake up and I'd be like, all right, I got two more weeks. So that doesn't work. That's how people gain their weight back, right? So what I needed to do is make a rule. All right, you can have one of these things with your steamed whatever in it. And then everyone after that has to be black. And I don't really like black coffee that much. So (laughs) I was able to have my first, oh no, it was the other way around. I I had to have a black coffee first and then I could have whatever I want steamed. And what that did for me is that since I coffee loses its taste for me very quickly, by the time I got through the first one, I just didn't feel like having any more coffee. But I didn't have to deprive myself. I always knew that if I just got through that first one, then I could have the second one with the steamed soy in it. Now, it's a, it may just be a silly example, but what it shows you is that when you change the game, you can flip from deprivation to okay, you can have this, but. And if you think about it, for those of us who are raising kids, that works really, really well. If we have a two-year-old and sometimes all you have to do is put a few conditions on it and by the time those conditions are met, the two-year-old's not interested in whatever it is they wanted that you didn't want them to have. So that's how our brain works, kind of like a two-year-old, a screaming two-year-old. And for anyone who's been in the throes of a craving, that's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> so th- that's... <laughs> I want it now. So you're like, okay, okay, okay. All we have to do is this and this, and then you can have it if you right. still want it. But that, you know that requires a a kind of internal differentiation between, like, when we identify with the screaming two year old, then all bets are off. It's you know that we have to identify with the rational parent who says, okay, these are the conditions, and you know what, they're going to be the same conditions tomorrow and next week and for until you know as far into the future as we can see because the two-year-old is always going to try to change the conditions or, or, or wiggle out of them. Oh, yeah. Well, human beings are, are hardwired to game. We're hardwired to play our own systems, whatever that is. So um, I once I once heard a quote by Tony Robbins that said, the quality of your life is determined by the questions you ask yourself every day. And I, I thought long and hard about that quote and I said, it's not really complete. I said that the real quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions you ask yourself multiplied by the frequency that you ask them raised to the integrity of your answers. And what I mean by that is this, this ability to examine your own life in real time, this ability to ask the most relevant question, what's the most important question I could be asking myself right now? Am I really hungry or am I just doing this out of habit? And then be willing to answer that with absolute integrity. 
And integrity is not just truth. It's like from your whole being. Integrity means to be made whole, to be integrated. So if you can ask really quality questions, really hard questions, questions you don't want to face, to raise your awareness and then answer them completely honestly, and then once you answer them, then you see how your behavior changes. One of the techniques that I use is I just say, you know what? Don't count calories, but I want you to write down everything you eat before you eat it. Write it down before you eat it. Write it down. I have people who lose like 50 pounds right away because they don't want to write down what they eat. They don't want to admit it. So if they don't admit it, they won't eat it. And if they won't eat it, they end up losing weight. I, I swear to you, this works. Oh, I'm, I, yeah, I've already stolen it. I, I've already, I've already written that down <laughs> for for use with with some yeah. of my clients and myself. I, I have right. I tell people, listen, if you want, if you want the vegan dessert, you need to recite this. I am about to eat something I know is going to make me fat, and that's just going to have to be okay with me. And see how you feel about that after you after you make that declaration. And if you're willing to do, I mean, there's there's a million different ways to raise your awareness. But at the end of the day, when you raise your awareness and connect to your higher purpose, it's actually hard to make the wrong decision. But there's so many people who stay willfully sort of ignorant or willfully uh, unaware. Mm. Well, and, the way you describe, you know, bringing your whole self into it, that's that's you know really powerful. It. It kind of reminds me of of sort of warrior ethos, where you're 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 not sort of on the sideline, you're not dipping a toe in, you're putting it all on the line. It feel it feels extremely risky in in the moment that you're you're making yourself completely vulnerable when you started this to to not feel any of that vulnerability. You didn't want the thoughts of people laughing at you or or guessing your waistline or wondering what you were going to eat. You were trying to make yourself kind of invisible. And and now the, the means by which is totally making yourself naked to yourself. Yeah, I mean, so life is dripping with irony, isn't it? That's <laughs> <laughs> just the way it is. You know, listen, here, here it is. Almost all the cause of human suffering is the gap that exists between the way you want things to be and the way things really are. Now think about that for a moment. Almost all of human suffering exists because because there's a gap between the way you want things to be and the way things really are. So it is our our role in limiting our suffering to close that gap. Can you 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 raise your voice a little bit? Sure, sure. Thanks. I I don't want want anyone to miss this stuff. (laughs) So just in case you missed it, it is... Almost all of human suffering comes from the size of the gap between the way you think things should be and the way things really are. And in order to limit your suffering, the idea is to close that gap. And one way to close that gap is to change the way you think things ought to be, to be willing to be open to changing the way you think things ought to be. The other way is to change your reality. And very often, the only way human suffering gets reduced or your personal suffering gets reduced is to do both. The only way you're ever going to change your reality is to become 100% attuned to it in every fiber of your being. And it's, it's interesting that you should say, you know, it's, it's all in when it comes to raising your awareness. Now, I don't know 
you know, everybody's religious, spiritual beliefs are different. But at the end of the day, almost all the religions of the world have this basic core belief that we have inside us this inner divinity, this inner consciousness. And that when something's right, we know it. Raising your level of awareness allows you to tap into that. Allows you to see things the way they really are and know what's right and what's wrong. Everything short of that is this sort of numbing down. And at 410 pounds, numbed down probably was an understatement. Mm, that's that's really interesting because you know, I, I don't consider myself to be religious and I don't know if I am spiritual. I know that that's a thing to say, like I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. But I, <laughs> I see a lot of people who are who are suffering internally and, and, and they may be they may present themselves as very religious or very spiritual. And yet, like, like there's some part of me that looks at them and say, you really don't believe in divinity. Like, mm -hmm. like if you did, you, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's, it's like you're, you're, you're in a war with your perception of God or reality that there's, that there's something about being, being at war with yourself that, that I take to be like, you're, you're not, you're not unified spiritually. Well, integrated. Uh, the, uh, integrity just keeps coming up over and over again. It's like when, when we start to get to that place where we're most aware, where we are able to limit our suffering, then we become more integrated. Then we become more or closer to that inner divinity, that inner purity, whatever you want to call it. And you don't have to be religious or spiritual to realize that there is a certain inner guidance system that... When you tap into it, everything seems to go in the right direction. Everything feels right. We, we say that's part of our normal vocabulary. That feels right. And when it really does feel right, it really does feel right. You know you're doing the right thing. You, you know that your suffering is, is being lessened because you're listening to your inner self. I know it sounds really woo-woo, and I didn't really, you know, didn't really want to go that way, but... If you're willing to be open to that, it changes everything. Well, you're speaking from your own integrity of experience, right? You're not uh, you're not yeah. standing up on a stage asking people to throw hundreds at you so they can uh, experience the prosperity gospel. Right? Well, I mean, if if they want to do that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. I'm speaking from my own experience, exactly. I mean, did you grow up woo woo, <laughs> for lack of a better term? Uh, no. Uh, Pretty unwoo woo, about as unwoo woo as you can get. My dad was a marine, uh, so <laughs> you know my dad handed me my first weapon when I was probably eight years old. Oh, what, what was it? Uh, it was an M1 carbine. <laughs> so, so that's that, that's not like a, a twenty-two or a BB gun, right? No, no, no. In fact, the first time I shot it, I felt my arm was going to fall off. I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> and he said, "Son, this is not a toy." He said, you don't aim at anything you don't intend to kill, and you don't kill anything you don't intend to eat, and that goes for your friends. Are we clear? <laughs> he says, so I never pointed a weapon at anyone, loaded or unloaded. Uh, you know, my dad was <laughs> pretty unwoo-woo, pretty, pretty straight and to the point. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, and, and that's why I actually, as much as we, you know, we had animals on the farm and everything, I never hunted because I knew that no matter what I shot, he was going to make me eat it. And I couldn't think of, there wasn't anything that ran across my path that I could imagine myself sitting down and eating. So I just never hunted anything. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, there's a certain <laughs> you know, integrity you, to being that kind of hunter, isn't it? Isn't there? Yeah, exactly. I, that, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I mean, you know, as a kid, you're handed this this power, this this massive amount of power, and you know, you want to wield it because you're just human, right? You have this power, you want to use it. But with that little that little check valve in there, well, son, if you, you kill it, you're gonna have to eat it. And he'd know, he'd just know. I could I could be five miles into the woods, and he'd know. So, <laughs> so there was no there was no there was no interest in my part in in eating anything that I saw wandering around the forest. Wow. So that yeah, that that fixed that for me. But no, I did not grow up woo woo okay. really at all. That that happened later. So I, w- I want to come back to your journey at at the point at which you uh, actually like two thousand two, two thousand three that you became an accidental vegan, and then all the the dominoes started to fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I lost the weight before that. So let's say probably more like two thousand five was when that 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 part of the evolution really started to happen. Okay. But just, just you know, getting back to the, the nuts and bolts of changing your diet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so when one of the videos I saw, you, you say that a kayak was like crucial to, to the impetus for your change. Right. Can you tell that? Yeah. Story? That's the, that's the physical activity part, you know? Um, well, it was, I it remember. was, it was that, you know, that, like that was, it seemed like that was your reason why. Um, you know, and I had, you know, you and I were both at plant stock, although we didn't know it and we didn't meet. We listened to Mylon Ross <laughs> talk about a, a Disney ride <laughs> as his, you know, yeah. come to yeah, Jesus I had moment. that experience. And had you had a very well. similar experience with a kayak, right? I had that experience with a Disney ride, too. That's another story. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, just well, a quick Mylon aside. Gets I rem- the Disney ride. We, we have to differentiate in our market. Yeah, well, it wasn't Disney. It was, it was uh, I went, but it's all part of the same story. I went. I went to, uh, it was Legoland, actually, in California, and it was a big trip, and my son was a big Lego guy because he was like that engineering mind, and, and they had this one ride, and we same thing. We waited online. We got up to the ride, and I tried to stuff myself into the ride, and finally the kid running the ride looked at me and said, dude, dude, seriously. Oh. And that was, it was, then I had to get out and wait, and it was the same kind of thing, but for the kayak... Yeah, I live on an island. In fact, I live on a peninsula on an island. So it's this little, I mean, literally, you can't walk, you know, 20 yards in either direction <laughs> once you leave my driveway. I mean, probably more, 200 yards in either direction and that without hitting water. So my son had said, um, Dad, I want a kayak for my birthday. And I had just started, I'd lost probably 100 of the 200 pounds. And I'm like, I- I'm not, I'm not getting in a kayak. And, you know, you're not going alone in the bay. And uh, he was... I realized with his disappointment that I was limiting the lives of those people I loved and that there's no reason this kid should not be able to have a kayak. There's no reason that I shouldn't get over myself. So I went and I bought two kayaks, one for him and one with the biggest cockpit they could have. There's the biggest opening to get in and out of this boat. And I made a commitment to kayak 20 minutes a day. Which uh, the first day I didn't go very that that far. <laughs> I didn't go that far at all. And then I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I guess I've been doing it every day for over a decade now. Every day. And 
on my 10-year anniversary of having lost the 200 pounds, I made a commitment to circumnavigate Long Island, New York, which, for those of you who know the area, that includes Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So I did the 270-mile trek, including the Varazana Narrows and Hell's Gate on the East River and uh, Throg's Neck into, back into Long Island and went from Montauk to Montauk in, uh, in eight and a half days. And I could have done it in eight, but my rudder cable broke at Orient Point, so I had to fix it and I missed the tide. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was another day. So yeah, I went from barely being able to get off the couch to paddling a kayak in, in open ocean conditions, 270 miles and just a little bit better than a week. So you mentioned earlier that you saw your son change as you changed what what and did daughter you, what did you see like what was there there must have been like when i try to change you know like my kids are my number one bullshit detectors <laughs> they really are right um, so, so what did what did you experience and see in in your son as well, they were as he began to trust that you were serious they they were pretty young at the time so the first thing that happened is just you know family meals changed uh and that they just kind of ate what was in front of them. And, you know, uh, I sat them down and I had them watch, uh, oh, what was the Morgan Spurlock movie about McDonald's? Supersize Me. Supersize Me. So I had them watch Supersize Me with me. And from then on, they and were done. How old were done, they? Jeez, uh, they were really young. <laughs> they were really young. You know, um, seven, eight, nine, ten. So it's probably my daughter was seven. My son might have been nine or ten. Um, now you have to understand something. Here's more of the backstory. Before I lost the weight, we owned an ice cream store. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? So when I sold the practice and I started with the stand-up comedy, I also opened up an ice cream magic store. So I would do kids' parties and tie balloon animals and do magic tricks. And um, we actually went in. <laughs> that turned into we delivered ice cream out on a boat. So like an ice cream truck, but with a boat. And from that, to put our own ice cream product onto the boat, we had to mold it into ice cream bars. So I developed a silicone ice cream mold, which we then started a whole new company where I would sell ice cream molds to big players in the ice cream industry. So, I mean, I was really, really into the ice cream world. Like, there's a whole world. And uh, we would go to trade shows, and I would speak on how to help ice cream store operators sell more ice cream than their customers wanted or needed. And the reason I would give that lecture is because the conclusion to their problem, how to sell more ice cream to their customers, was to make ice cream novelties, bars and pops, and then they would offer my molds as a solution to that problem. I'm not, you know, I'm ashamed of all of this, by the way. <laughs> so well, I, I ended up yeah. selling all but, of that but I, but I hear the remnants of the, of the way you think now applied to... Uh to oh, yeah, health yeah. and weight loss. Like the, the marketing education is never wasted, right? No, no, no. And, and everybody knows, and you were into marketing, so you understand this, that the forces of marketing can be used, they're, they're basic principles. You know, they can be used for positive or negative ends. I mean, the, the same principles apply. Whether you, want to, um, whether you want to influence somebody to do something just for your own bidding or you want to influence somebody to improve their own well-being, the same mechanics apply. So, yeah, once I, once I realized what I was doing and how it impacted people's lives, 
based on what I now knew, I could no longer do that. So I just, I literally offloaded all of those, both of those businesses at a fire sale. I mean, I just completely got rid of them. But back to your original question. So we made some changes at home. Uh, I had them watch Super Size Me. They didn't wanted no part of fast food, except when my parents would come pick them up to take them, you know, for, for grandparents' day, the first place they would go would be McDonald's because they felt, my parents felt, that we were somehow depriving our children of this, this very important part of their childhood. And they would always do the same thing. They'd go there with my kids and they'd say, don't tell your parents. And then my kids would go, they'd, they'd get something small so that they wouldn't make grandma and grandpa feel bad, and then they'd, they'd either they'd get sick or they wouldn't feel good or whatever the purpose. And then finally, one day, my daughter said to my mother, listen, nanny, we can't do, we can't do this anymore. You're gonna, we can't do this. You're making us sick. And it was the kids that had to sort of school my parents because when I tried to explain it to them, they just assumed that I was depriving mm. the kids, which I thought was <laughs> So the other thing, the other thing that I did is um, I found this device that connected to the TV that they would put a credit card in and the TV would turn on. And when the credit card ran out of time the TV would turn off. There'd be no arguing because there was nobody there to argue with. The TV just went off. So the only way they could turn on this TV was to swipe this card. And then I would load the card with minutes based on how many minutes a week they would exercise. So for every minute they would go out and play or they would take a walk or they would go kayaking, they would earn time to watch TV. And my daughter, who just brilliant, said, hey, Dad, if we put a treadmill in the living room, can I watch the TV without having it <laughs> count against my time. And sure. And then she negotiated that the time she was on the treadmill should rightfully add to her time on her card. Sure. And then I found out that she was selling time to her brother. Ah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it improved her accounting skills quite a bit. Like she really got good at math and deal making. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, it was that it was that kind of stuff that you know put me in the fortunate position of when, you know, college essays came, my kids were writing essays about how this experience changed them and how when I first enacted all of it, I was horrible, like the worst dad ever. But then as I started to see the effects of these changes, my daughter ended up, both kids ended up doing much better in school. Both kids ended up becoming athletic. My daughter ended up becoming very musical, was first chair playing the violin because she wasn't sitting there. Her brain wasn't leaking out in front of the TV. So she was like, well, if I can't watch TV, I might as well play the violin. <laughs> so little little subtle things like that would happen, all because I found this this little machine that wouldn't let them watch TV unless they earned the time on the TV. So I found that kind of interesting. So there's a lot that I want to explore with you, that, but we're, we're uh, coming up on the hour. Um, I'd love to invite you back. For, well, for a you. second conversation, um, but I want to make sure that I understand what you're up to now. Because I know you've you've uh, you've kind of shown us your coaching chops, and and you know the, your your very deep, considered, intentional philosophy and methodology around helping people. But you you also have a food preparation company. Is that right? Yeah, which is really <laughs> it's just our coaching company but more of an applied sense. So what happened was um, 
I completely changed my physical therapy practice from a conventional PT practice. I started another practice and changed it to a holistic, integrated physical therapy wellness practice. I had a demo kitchen and a yoga space and all this great stuff, and nobody wants to pay for any of that, especially not where I am, which is kind of a rural area in Long Island. Um, so I kind of closed that down, and I just retreated back to my home office, and I was doing private coaching clients, and people were highly motivated to to coach with me because um, you know that's what they were paying for. So I thought things would get easier. So we'd give people all these oh, amazing recipes. My wife's an amazing vegan cook, and um, find out that they wouldn't they wouldn't cook anything, just nothing. <laughs> they'd love the recipes, and they'd love to talk about the recipes. When it came to actually cooking the recipes, not so much. So then what we did is we started to schedule clients around meal times. Like we'd have them come over for lunch, we'd have them come over for dinner, and we'd feed these people. And they loved it. They just loved the food. So like all of a sudden they started to realize that they didn't have to, you know, suffer to eat a plant-based diet. And it was working great, except they, they wouldn't do anything when they weren't here. So one guy, one of our clients said, listen, you know, Doc, I... I know you don't agree with this, but I think it's a good step. I want to try this uh, this meal kit company. And he told me the name of the meal kit company. They're not plant-based. But he goes, I want to try that because I want to try to get into the kitchen. Will you teach me how to cook it? I said, sure, no problem. So he brings this box over. He opens the box. He's all excited. I mean, a big, burly contractor guy, super excited, opens up the box, looks inside, and sees exactly what this company is selling, which was a culinary experience. He got to zest a lemon. He got to do all this great stuff. And he looked in there and he said, I'm not doing any of this crap. I'm not doing any of it. He says, I just want to eat dinner. And he actually started to get emotional. He actually started to cry. And, you know, like I said, with the doctor's office, you know that uncomfortable moment when a grown man is crying in your living room and when he only wants to have his dinner. Yeah. And I said to my wife, I'm like, all right, let's, let's do this. Let's put together your award-winning vegan chili ingredients. We'll send them home. We'll tell him, put this in your crock pot in the morning. When you come home, you'll have dinner. Because I went to culinary school. That's the, that's something that we didn't talk about, but I went to culinary <laughs> school. And, yeah, it's like my life is completely unbelievable. It's, so I went to culinary school because I realized that people did not want any more nutrition advice from a medical professional because they just didn't want to be told what not to eat. So I went to culinary school so I could understand how to actually cook. So in culinary school, they took all us brand-new students, and they had us just make soups and sauces. Why? Because anybody can do that. It's just boiling water, basically. So I said, well, let's just give him this crockpot meal because it's easy. Just put all the ingredients in the crockpot. And uh, so he calls us up the next day and he goes, Doc, he goes, I live alone. I come home to an empty house every single day. He goes, but tonight my whole house smelled like it was saying, honey, welcome home. Oh, now I'm I'm here, I go. Right, exactly. He goes, I don't care what it takes, but I want this every week. So... My wife and I looked at each other and said, okay, okay. So for six months, we delivered these crockpot-ready meals to this one guy. <laughs> just this one guy. We just, we just didn't know what to do. We, I mean, we started this thing. We can't just like – it's like when you feed the birds in the winter. You just can't stop feeding them. They'll die. So, so we just – we kept doing it and doing it. And after six months of this, I said to my wife, let's just put up a website and see if anyone else is interested in this. And sure enough – people were interested so we started this whole business we got all our um, permits and we have a commercial kitchen and we bought a truck and every week we 
have a, a team that puts together three full plant-based meals ready to cook in your crock pot or vegan burgers with summer salads and off they go and we're feeding people and, and the people who are doing it are, are largely your coaching clients or no no not at all now no it's just people th- these are people from the you know the regular world whatever that is um we have a bunch of different clients we have vegans who are just starting and don't don't know exactly what to do or they don't have time we have working moms we have teachers who just you know they just want to get home and have dinner uh we have busy contractors like my guy who wants to lose weight and then we have people who have been told by their doctor listen you got to do something or you're going to die and they give us a try and so we're we're very serious that this is just an extension of our healing practice we do not see this company as a food delivery company we see our role as saving people's lives that's what we see our role. That's why this business is so important to us because it's not about just delivering food. Uh, what we say internally is we deliver compassion. We deliver compassion for yourself by taking care of yourself. We do deliver compassion for all other sentient beings and we deliver compassion for the planet. And, uh, you know, maybe on our next podcast we can talk about what each one of those three things means. But <clears throat> that's our that's our guiding principle. That's what gets us up in the morning. And uh, that's what makes it easier to wake up and start chopping vegetables. Okay. And y- you you deliver fresh stuff, right? So it's just, what, North Shore, Long Island? Uh, we, we deliver all of Long Island. Um, we're making a push into Brooklyn now, but, uh, you know, the truck, the truck goes the whole length of the island. And uh, it's, it's, if you go to the website, you can see all of the recipes that we make. And so you can see the kind of the type of foods. So some of it's salad, some of it's casseroles, some of it's like our vegan chili. Um, so you know, there's some, there's some, there's a lot of beans. Obviously, they're not fresh grown on Long Island, but it took us took us three months to find a bean supplier that we were comfortable with because we started with just plain old canned Goya beans, and we're like, actually, it was one of our customers that opened the box and said, "Canned beans? Really?" It was a Hamptons real estate <laughs> agent, and she's just like, "Oh, really?" And that got me thinking. It's like, wow, maybe there's something else. So we took months and found this new bean supplier, non-GMO, organic. And they actually processed the beans completely differently than the canned process. They use um, uh, non-BPA recyclable Tetra Packs. And uh, the beans were unbelievable. So, who, you know, you know you're a vegan when you're getting excited about beans. <laughs> you, know, you know you're a vegan when that happens. So that's, um, you know, we're constantly looking at sourcing the best possible ingredients, which sometimes is is easy and affordable and sometimes is not easy and inaccessible. But um, we're constantly playing that game of what is the best food that we can provide for the price point that we have. And um, I guess that's a tension that every business has is to, to, to find that sweet spot. Right. And but so you're, you're limiting delivery to where a truck can get fresh ingredients to on a daily basis or three times a week. Yeah, well, we deliver once a week. Um, and the, the plan for expansion is that we are going to empower other vegan entrepreneurs who are really, really clear about their purpose, but not so clear about the business infrastructure and the marketing piece to uh, set up similar operations in different markets. And then we would support them. That's what I I was kind of Pussy footing around is like I don't, yeah, don't want to like if you're going to expand nationally. I don't want you to tell other people how to do it, but 
that's right. That's well, that's fantastic. That's the plan that we're doing. It's it's sort of a licensing or a franchising model. We haven't quite figured out which legal structure we're going to pursue. But at the end of the day, what we realize is that there is a lot of really passionate, knowledgeable, uh, just full-hearted people out there that want to make a difference, and they have they don't have the the time or the skills to build the business infrastructure. And if we've built it already why not repurpose it in other markets? And we don't want to be one of those companies that simply throws stuff in a box, hands it to a FedEx guy and says, you know, good luck with that. And that works. That model really works. I mean, these companies are being traded publicly and they're doing very well, but we wanted a more local approach. Um, the other thing that we're planning to do with our, that we do with our customers is we have a private Facebook group for our customers and we do weekly teleseminars where we hop on and we're like, hey, what can we, you know, what can we help you with? How can we help you be healthier? The, as soon as our revenue starts to pick up a little bit more, we're going to hire coaches to call uh, all new customers within the first month and ask them if there's anything that they would like to talk about with regard to their health, nothing to do with the product, and then end the call with, would it be okay if we checked in with you in a month, and then give them the opportunity to have another coaching session. And this is, this is something that the company would commit to because what we're trying to do is develop those relationships that are going to help these people reach their health goals. That's what's really interesting to us. And we're just using the food as a vehicle. And it's a good vehicle for that. Yeah, I mean, I, this sounds so needed because, you know, there, yeah, there are the big companies, you know, the Blue Aprons and, you know, the vegan entrees, the Purple Carrot, um, who are getting into these really complex logistics of, you know, insulation and frozen and, and sourcing and, and huge numbers. And it sounds like you're you're not you're you're keeping it sort of small and local enough to not need to deal with a bunch of those issues, but still a lot of people like who are good cooks and they're told, oh, you're such a good cook, you should you know you should make food for other people. They'll make food for like three or four other people, and then decide to scale, and all of a sudden everything goes haywire, right? Because yeah. now they need the business permit. Now they feel guilty about charging ten bucks a plate instead of three. Yep. Like the idea exactly that, some, what that, that you have sort of solved a lot of these challenges and you can give people a boilerplate business. You know, if I were interested in doing it, I would just say, like, you know, send me something to sign so I don't have to make all the mistakes you probably did. That's exactly the plan. You know, I mean, um, one of the best working definitions of an entrepreneur that I've ever heard is that entrepreneurs are in the business of solving other people's problems for money. And, you know, when you can be in the uh, advantageous position of having solved some real problems and make a duplicatable system, you know, that's, that's the business. And if in doing that, we can enable other vegan entrepreneurs to do what they really love and save other people's lives in the process, you know, that's, that's what they call a win-win-win. <laughs> Everybody gets to win. So we're in the process of, you know, honing that system now and codifying it and putting it into both um, legal terms and academic terms that everyone can understand, uh, then we'll be ready to roll out that that program in other markets. We've already had uh, people inquire. You know, they're ready to go. They're like, yeah, let's do this. We want this. We want this in our town, and we want to be the ones to do it. So we're really, really excited about that proposition, really excited. So where can uh, so you know so so now there's a whole bunch of people who are listening who are sad that they don't live you know within a trucks ride of, of Long <laughs> Island, but now they can be excited because they can 
uh, replicate this in their own yeah. communities. How can people get in touch with you and follow you and the, see what The best way there? would be to go to the website at harvestfoodbox.com. So www.harvestfoodbox.com. Uh, if people want to friend request me on Facebook, I'm always open to people who are, you know, not scamming me. And um, we're also... <laughs> uh, and I'll include links to, yeah, yeah. to your Facebook and to the harvestfoodbox.com in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And then uh, and then our Harvest Food Box uh, Facebook page is always a good place to connect with us as well. So, uh, you know, that would probably be the best three. Uh, the Harvest Food Box Facebook page, the Harvest Food Box website, and then um, you can also just friend me personally because, um, you know... I always like getting new friends, so that's that's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So uh, so I made a, I made a note of a bunch of all the things that I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to, <laughs> and you mentioned a, f- a few as well. So we'll def- we'll definitely have to continue this. Um, wow. Um, you know, when you when, before right before we st- we started recording, you said you know, have you prepared something? Or are we going to wing it? And I kind of said both, but. This went in so many directions that I was not Sorry. expecting. And, and I'm so happy you. To, uh, to to have gone there with you. This I was, appreciate this was really that. Thank fun. you. And, and I hope that it was cogent enough for people to kind of follow along because I, I do – I live that meandering path. Isn't it interesting how conversations start and end in this sort of cycle? Like we started the conversation explaining sort of the meandering path of people's lives and the meandering path of history. And look at this, the – meandering path of this uh, of this podcast and thank you very much for taking the the walk with me yeah this is very very uh meta and hologrammatic right <laughs> true enough thank you this conversation is is life yep indeed all right well russ lomdieu thank you so much for all you do for your vision and for your uh your openness honesty vulnerability and passion and for taking the time today yes and thank you i appreciate the opportunity If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 229. If you're new to this show, you can catch up. 228 archived episodes are over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter, you can sign up and also get that Oatmeal Project report at plantyourself.com slash oatmeal. In garden news, the greens are now doing great. We're getting about six cups of greens a day for our morning smoothie. And I just pulled up the okra. Man, okra is itchy when you touch it without long sleeves. And compost did that, and I've got another bed in which to plant some more greens. And uh, it's a little late in the season, but maybe we'll get a few extra leaves from that bed. In running news, I had a really good time at the Pepperfest Flying Pepper Run in Briar Chapel, uh, North Carolina. And it was amazing in that I've been running these trails for a while. I ran them with my friend Ryan to prepare for Leadville, my first uh, non-road-ish um, race. And these trails are very technical, roots and rocks, and now there's leaves falling, so the roots and rocks are hidden. And I've been doing like 12, 13, 14-minute miles just to avoid falling on my face. And when you put a race in front of me, I felt so much more confident that I managed to finish the four miles in nine minute, 18 second average miles, which felt wonderful. It felt like I was liberated from the fear of running so slowly and gingerly. 
I still have the New River Trail coming up on October 14th. That's in uh, two and a half weeks. And I'm really looking forward to that. If you want to run a really beautiful, easy 50K, go to Ultra Sign Up, search for New River Trail. I'd love to see you there. All right, it's time for the thank yous. Of course, Will Ridenauer gets first crack at that for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his music. And it's time for the Plant Yourself Podcast Patron Parade. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Dean Ahern, Jennifer Ganowski, David Bizek, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Elton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sarah, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Doron Avizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, <gasps> Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Morton, Bonnie Lynch, of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kirchhalls, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julianne Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, and new to this week, Linda Ayat, which rhymes with Ayat, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>